0: Oh <laughs> Taking you nowhere.
1: Good afternoon, and welcome to another episode, the second in two days of the Esk Podcasts. I've got with me Mike Gow. Mike, uh, you and I have chatted on uh, Twitter. For probably a couple of years or more, we have obviously common interests in Everton, but we also have common interests in China. And I, I know you spent a lot of time out there over the years. As of high, as of high, as have as have I. That's better. Um, so yeah, we have we, we have that in common. And now um, in recent days, with all this sort of takeover, sort of speculation in the air, uh, uh, you, you've come up with an interesting theory. So. Uh, we both thought it would be good to to have a chat, but in the first instance, why don't you explain a little bit, a little bit about who you are, what why you're here?
0: Okay, thanks thanks very much, Paul. Um, so my name is Mike Mike Gow. Uh, I'm a currently a, a member of faculty at Edge Hill University Business School. So just a short a short ride out from uh, Liverpool to Ormskirk. Um, so I, I, I live in the city. My wife is an academic as well. She's at the University of Liverpool. And um, my area, I mean, really my research focuses, as you said, on China and particularly looking at the role of private business and, and cultural industries, including the football sector and sports, uh, on current state building campaigns in China under Xi Jinping. So I look very much at contemporary China. Um, um, but obviously, as an Everton fan, having come back to the UK after a long time overseas, I um, I arrived back in the UK late 2018 um, and we've been based in Liverpool since then. So uh, coming back, it's obviously sort of reconnecting with the place and, and and I found that my Twitter has now moved sort of away from China stuff to be dominated by sort of Everton uh, discussion. So, you know, I'm very interested obviously the developments of the club. Um, obviously, like most fans over the last, what, uh, definitely in the last 12 months, um, increasingly annoyed and angry about um, the sort of management of the club and the seeming lack of any overarching strategy there. Um, so my interests uh, in, in 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 this area, uh, not specifically somebody who's researching, say, football finance or researching the football industry per se, but certainly um, interested in the sector and specifically in Everton, um, so I think I'm coming at this rather as an academic, as a sort of uh, a fan with a sort of academic point of view. If that's mm-hmm. if that's the best way of framing it.
1: No, that, that that's really interesting. And actually, before we get into the topics that we said we were going to discuss, um, with your particular interest on uh, in relation to China and football, how would you characterize? the current relationship between sort of the state, the nation of China, um, the Chinese president, and his once uh, very keen interest in football. How, how would you characterize that now?
0: Well, this is something that I've researched with a, a couple of other guys. Um, uh, John Sullivan, who's at Nottingham University, yeah. a very prominent China scholar, and Simon Chadwick, who was previously at Salford. He's now over in Lyon in France, and he's probably one of the... Go-to guys on the on the football industry globally, um, and we published a paper a couple of years back, uh, doing a full analysis of China's what they call their medium to long-term football development plan, which is part of their overarching long-term strategy. Um, to uh, and, and this specific plan stretches from, I think it's 2012 it started to 2050. Okay, so we're talking we're talking an incredibly long-term vision of how China is going to get from this um, sort of current state of affairs to build the infrastructure, to build the sort of... It's it's almost a top-down kind of building of grassroots football to campus football, schools, uh, building pitches, to eventually, and it's not to win a World Cup, this is something that's maybe often misquoted, but to become a global football power. That's their overarching vision by 2050. And the role of... Sports, particularly in post-socialist nation states. Um, even obviously under socialism, you, you tended to look at things like uh the Olympics and the, you know, these are displays of national strength. If you're topping the medals tables, this is always something you see at the Olympics now. Um if you look at China, um th- they always structure the medals tables to show their top. So they'll do it on the, the amount of gold medals won, they'll be top. But if you look at total medals, then the USA is top. So if you look at the in American media, if you look at the uh, medals tables, they, they calculate in slightly different ways to show that they're dominant. Um, and football is really central to the party's state-building initiatives. Um, and so, to explain why that's important is if you think about it from your own perspective. If you think as, you, as an Everton fan, you, you're going to support Everton in the in the club season uh, from you know August through to May, whenever it is. But when there's a World Cup on, you know, are you England, are you Wales, are you a Scotland fan? If you support a football team, the chances are, if your country qualifies for a World Cup or a, or a European Championships, you're going to be following them and supporting them and, and watching those games, um, even if you're not mad for international football during friendlies or Nations League or something. So creating sports industries around, uh, around this type of thing it, it is actually a, a hugely important instrument in creating consensus and national unity and sense of national identity and patriotism and these types of things. And that's the role, really, that they see for the sports industry in relation to state-building projects in China. Um, And this is something that I think is lost on a lot of people that maybe are unfamiliar with China or seen about it in the news, um, is that propaganda campaigns, they used to come through the state but now what we see is, is China is, is, is this sort of weird chimera of both planned, market, uh, planned economy and market economy. There's a huge, obviously, consumer identity and consumer movement going on there. Um, and the way that the state is communicating these values these days is through consumption. So it's, it's what you buy, what brands are you buying, how you're consuming things, what events are you going to. Uh, The entertainment industry, the film, TV industry, is communicating the values of the state. Um, Through sports, you're becoming not just a football fan of, say, Shanghai Shempa, but also supporting the China national team and maybe watching um, uh, them compete in the the Asian uh, championships and this type of thing. So there's a huge strategic uh, reason for this. And if you look at the way that they're building it, it's not just about the China Super League clubs. It's about the entire infrastructure behind and you've got a vast array of state organs, institutions including the People's Bank including the um, regulatory commissions uh, including private businesses that are competing over um, stadium building projects, this type of thing so you think like companies like Wanda which are involved with uh, Atletico Madrid into Milan, uh, you think of companies like Fosun which had an involvement with I think it was Wolves here um, these are, these are are all are all these companies? You know, these are conglomerates in China that are involved in insurance industries, in finance, um, in um, in tech sector, in broadcasting, but also in real estate. These types of things. So, what they're doing effectively is they are they are building not just teams, uh, professional teams, but they're building an entire infrastructure that will allow football to be the dominant sport. By, and, and for China to be performing and competing at the, at the elite global level by 2050.
1: Is that still tied into a desire to uh, at some point host the World Cup? Um, I guess, though, at a time when the China national side is a strong enough side not to embarrass itself um, if the Cup w- was ever to be hosted in China.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's obviously something that, that, that's within that 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 uh, that time scale twenty twelve to twenty fifty plan. Yeah. But I would be putting it towards maybe the end stage of the twenty uh, the, the end of the medium stage, which I think goes from I think it's from twenty twenty to twenty thirty six. I think, if memory serves, that is what they call the medium. So you've got the short term, which is twenty twelve to twenty twenty. Then you've got a medium phase, and then you've got the long term phase, which is that sort of last twelve. Uh, 12- 12 years or so uh, 12 14 years so uh, and the, one of the reasons for that is i think if you look at if you look at the way fifa awards world cups is it tends to sort of do a bit of a sort of jog around the continents right so um obviously with uh, J- japan and south korea you've got to look at, at, at that sort of schedule is w- when's it going to end up going to asia next and i think we're probably due uh, where's the next world next World Cup's Qatar? Obviously, so that's Middle East. We're then probably gonna see it what, back in Europe, maybe South America, maybe North America, probably but It's, it's North America
1: next, isn't it? After that, it's North America six. next.
0: Yeah. Right, 2026. So you you probably look in 2030s, maybe early 2040s, before China's really gonna have a chance to to host that. But by then, the idea, I think with the Chinese state is that they, they're going to have that stadium infrastructure, they're going to have the, the interest and hopefully they're going to have a team that's capable of, of competing a bit more, even though they, they likely qualify automatically as hosts. Like you say, they wouldn't, yeah, they wouldn't want to be embarrassed on that stage. So, so yeah, I think it's some way off. Um, and also, if you look at what's happened with, um, with uh, I mean, at present, um, sporting events have been, have been have been due to the zero um, tolerance policy on COVID. Yeah. So yeah, and, until we're out of the side of that, I think all bets are off. But uh, obviously, hope, we're hoping it's not going to go on much, much longer. That there'll be some um, return to some level of normality on the COVID front sometime soon.
1: Okay. Now, one of the interesting things about about China and th- and thanks for that obviously your area of expertise and it, and it's interesting I think just you know aside from Everton to hear about other aspects of, of global football but putting an Everton hat back on one of the interesting things of course at the moment is with this potential to um, take is the role of um, this American guy John Thornton whom many people might not be uh, aware of his um, of his connections to China itself,
0: right? Yes. Yeah, so, so John Thornton. This is somebody that I'm very familiar with. I, I know of him. I've not met him. Obviously, this is somebody that operates uh, in the in the upper echelons of uh, of, uh, of power and, and, and industry. So, um, but he's he's a name that's familiar to me. So, as soon as I heard this name, surely it can't be the same John Thornton who is. You know, co-chairman of the Brookings Institute and chairman of the Asia Society, and uh, professor at Tsinghua University. Um, But he is a a former financier. He was previously uh, chairman of of Goldman Sachs, Um, and he's on the board at Ford Motor Company. He's also on the board of China Unicom in Hong Kong. Um, He's one of these uh, these characters through over the last twenty years. If you're if you're looking at any aspect of, of China in a geopolitical realm. This is one of these influential figures that seems to operate at the very top and sort of um, of both um, the uh, U.S. circles and outside the U.S. And listening to your podcast last night with uh, was it Richard uh, Watson, Matt Slater, uh, they drew attention to this as well. Uh, you, you were discussing did this this uh, sort of aspect that maybe got some sort of political beliefs, because you've seen him fraternising with the likes of Farage and Steve Bannon and these sort of right-wing American characters, but he's he, he I know him as, as, as somebody, I, I think the, the term that you guys used was, this, this is a pragmatist, uh, and that, I think that's, that's a pretty good way of framing um, he, he operates at that level where, you know there's no left, there's no right, there's you know, it's this sort of geopolitical realm where he talks to the people that are in positions to to, to influence, basically. Uh, and those people, while those people come and go over time, it's characters like Thornton, um, who have headed these great financial institutions uh, in the US. These are the guys that stay around. These are the people that everybody wants to network with once they get to that higher level of, of power. So I, I'm familiar with John Thornton as a sort of academic philanthropist. I mean, uh, and, you know, within China... Policy circles and think tank circles. There's a lot of people that have been suspect suspect of him because of his seemingly um, constant uh, overtures to China on on sino US business and, and, and what have you. Um, but I don't, I, I, you know, I don't know him personally. I don't know a huge amount of his uh, sort of background. But when his name come, came up associated with this, I thought it can't be the same guy. Surely, what the hell? interest does this guy have in not just everything, but sports in general? um, It just didn't make much sense to me. And I've been scratching my head about it for the last week, trying to sort of figure out, you know, what's the angle here?
1: Yeah. It's it's interesting because I I know him a little bit from, from China a couple of times, sort of uh, our, our paths crossed, albeit I was a significantly junior level to what he was. Um, and I know a couple of people at Goldman Sachs who um, worked with him. And uh, I spoke, to, actually, I spoke to one this morning, and, and, and he, he's just amazed at the idea that he would even entertain the idea of getting his hands dirty with a, you know, a what might be perceived as a relatively small football club, um, even if we don't think yeah. it's relatively small.
0: Absolutely. I mean, the, the one thing that I thought is, you know, I mean, if you're looking at the valuation, 500, 800 million, I mean, if, if, if he'd have come along and, and been part of a consortium that was maybe putting money into a Barcelona or a Real Madrid or a New York Giants, I would not be batting an eyelid as much. But this, is, this guy operates at that sort of level. Um, not It just doesn't make much sense to me. And I've spoken to a, a, a few people um, and they're equally like, puzzled um and that's maybe not the investment banking that's more the sort of china um policy sort of uh community it's like doesn't make much no sense um so yeah so that's maybe what sent me on this kind of uh, uh speculative sort of conspiratorial kind of <laughs> uh, exploration of you know what the hell's going on um uh, is there any is there anything we're missing here um, so, hence this sort of monster thread that I posted like last night.
1: Right. You sent, you got a future in um, in spy stories in the future if you uh, ever ever want <laughs> to give up academia, and, and I mean that in, in in the nicest possible sense because <laughs> I read it and I thought, wow, this is this is really excellent stuff. You know, you could you could you could literally write a book or do or or create a movie out out of what what you've written. So, for the benefit of those who perhaps don't know that much about the people that you were sort of throwing together as a as a possible uh, reason uh, for him being involved and also the connections that uh, a a Mashiri or a Uzmanov might have um with either Barrick which is obviously his gold company or with other companies do, do you just want to run run through with that and um I might sort of jump in and sort of ask you a couple of sure. questions as, as, you, as you go along. Because I do think it's really interesting. Whether it yeah. has um, any legs to it or not, I, I think that's for a lot of people, other people to, to decide. Yeah,
0: um, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's one thing that we have to make clear here from the outset. And we've, I mean, there's been a few comments on the thread I and mean, then sort of um, other sort of uh, quote tweet threads and stuff. You'll say, well, this could be complete nonsense, basically. And, and yeah, of course it could. But at the same time, it does. there is a certain amount within the wider context of what's happening in the world today. I think there's a, there's a strong argument to be made um, um, or, or there's a reason for us to ask these questions, should, should I say. That's probably the better way of framing it. So, um, so I don't know what the best way to get into this is because it is, as you say, it kind of works in a Twitter thread in a kind of different way. And I tried to write that with that express intention in mind was to sort of like, well, where's this going? Where's this going? And then boom, this sort of big kind of, um, uh, sort of conspiratorial tone to it, and used a lot of gifts in there as well. So it should it should be entertaining, I think.
1: That's oh, it is. it is, and and the gift selection <laughs> is fantastic. What what yeah. you put into the search engines to find those gifts? I'm not sure. <laughs> so. Yeah,
0: it was. It took a bit of time, but I was I was laughing my head off while I was doing it. I must say. So um. <laughs> so let's okay,
1: start so with let's start with the connection with gold. So what's John Thornton's connection with gold?
0: So uh, John Thornton, as we said former CEO of Goldman Sachs, but his current position is that he's the executive chairman of Barrick uh, Mining, which is a massive uh, U.S. Uh, mining company, owns, uh, is in a JV with another company, another uh, American company, me. I think, yeah, I think Newmont. Barrick is actually, Newmont, that's right. Yeah. I think Barrick is actually, Based in Toronto. I think it's a Canadian company, actually. It it's is. Actually yeah. It's, it's in, listed, in on New,
1: listed on the New York Stock Exchange, but its corporate headquarters are yeah, in it's t- Toronto.
0: Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's where everyone's getting confused. But they have a joint venture with um, Newmont, which is the largest uh, gold company by reserves, I think, uh, the largest gold mine by reserves in the world. Um, so th- th- this is a massive, massive um, mining operation. Um, uh, focusing specifically on the on the gold market, and one thing that I think that we need to sort of make make ourselves quite aware of here is the the current context that we find ourselves in, which is relevant not just to the ownership issues at Everton, but within the broader sort of economy it's, it, it itself. Um, so, with gold, as many people will be aware. it's it's seen as a safe haven in times of economic uncertainty and turmoil. Now, we've had, obviously, the hits to the global economy and supply chains caused by coronavirus over the last two years. Um, And we've kind of got this almost perfect storm um, in in the economic sphere, particularly affecting developed economies, right? So our way out of the COVID uh, has been, what you call quantitative easing, which is effectively the printing of money, and um, um, keeping uh, um, keeping uh, interest rates low, so pumping more money into the economy to keep it going when you know it's sort of dying down. But what we've got now at the moment is we've also got this this sort of counter sort of pressure going on with inflation. So how do you stop that as, as if you're thinking of you're sitting in the bank of england or you're sitting in the, the uh, uh, a central bank anywhere in the world what what economists are going to be looking at and thinking is right well we can we can raise interest rates right because what that does it gets people to stop uh stop spending and save it also hits anybody with mortgages is going to know if you get a two percent rise on your your mortgage interest the, over the base rate, then that is going to have a profound impact on your monthly payments. So it takes a lot of money out of circulation, basically. Um, but what that also does is it slows down growth. So we've got this dual problem at the moment is that we've got a potentially stag, what they call stagflationary, so stagnation within the, within the economy where there's low growth, but also. We've got this inflationary pressure where inflation uh, inflation's rising. Things are getting more expensive. Fuels going up, energy's going up, food's going up. People have less money to spend. So, in that situation, the solution is usually to print more money and spend your way out of it. This type of thing. So, it, it, you've got these kind of competing forces. But what you've also, because you've got low growth, you've also then got these geopolitical things going on. But gold, gold is always a safe haven for money. If things are not going well in the economy, if things are not going well um, on the stock markets, what you tend to see is a lot of money being shifted into, these, uh, in, into commodities, into things that are going to hold their value. And gold is what I've, I've seen it referred to as TINA. There is no alternative, right? There's no Bitcoin. <laughs> it's like obviously a major mess at the moment. There's no other really safe places to put money. So the gold markets at the moment are rising rapidly. Um, I think it was se- September 2020. It hit nearly it was 1,975 an ounce, um, and it's now it, it, it's now getting back up to these sorts of levels. So anybody in gold in that in that industry is you know they're looking they're looking to be uh, making a killing basically. Um, so this is something we have to understand, right? Uh, is that people that work in, in you know the, the sort of levels of Uzmanovs and Abramoviches, these sort of Russian oligarchs, and these Wall Street bankers with, with their trust funds, and they want to hide their money somewhere where it's going to maintain its value. Where, where are they going to be putting it? They're going to be putting it into gold, and we're going to likely going to see the price of gold keep rising. I would, I would say, uh, it's a pretty, it's a pretty solid bet that whatever happens with economic policy, gold is going to be a pretty safe place. So that's one thing I think we've got to look at. And this company, Barrick. Are a massive massive player in, in that in that gold market what we've also seen um, sorry does that answer the question on 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 this? I know it's sort of gone off tandem there, but um, it, it's, it, 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 I, th- I think that's what we need to understand about john Thornton's main role is yeah, a, as exec that, 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 chairman of this, sets, of this gold mining company
1: absolutely yeah. that sets the scene i mean from from my own research you know Barrick is is pro- probably the uh, the company with the largest gold re- known gold gold reserves, um, yes, doesn't doesn't necessarily operate in the areas that we, we're going to get onto in a few a few minutes time, I guess, in terms of Central Asia, in terms of Russia, you know, it's been uh, predominantly the US, a little bit in Middle East, and quite a bit in, in on, on the African co- continent, um, but yeah, so effectively, John. John Thornton run, runs this company. He, he's the executive chairman, and yes. obviously there isn't. There's a, uh, a common interest between him and uh, Usmanov and Mashiri uh, and that common interest is that they both obviously have big interest in uh, in mining, in min- mineral extraction business, businesses around the world. So that's I think what the next point that we get to what. Is the potential link between John Thornton, who's a, you know heavily into gold, and a Emma or an Usmanov, you know, let's call it USN.
0: Right. So so th- th- this is yeah, the next place that we need to go is to get out of the US and the, the gold markets there, and now look at, at um at Alisha Usmanov and by the association, uh, Farhad Mashiri as well. So uh, Uzmanov uh, is one of the Russian oligarchs that, that sort of emerged out of the um, post-Soviet era, particularly following the death of Boris Yeltsin. There was a power struggle at the top of the um, uh, Russian political elite. So his vice president, uh, Yeltsin hated his vice president. I can't remember his name, is it Nemesov? Um, and Putin was then installed uh, as the acting president without uh, any election on the, um, I think, retirement or death of of, of Boris Yeltsin, and then he, he managed to then maintain that that, that sort of grab on power. And it's out of this context that these, these oligarchs have emerged. So uh, people like Abramovich, people like uh, uh, Alisha Usmanov. And, um, you know, th- th- these guys have in, in the sort of fracturing of the Soviet Union, which obviously included states like you know, Uzbekistan and Georgia, and it wasn't just Russia. Um, it was lots of uh, Ukraine, for example, was was, was part of the um, USSR. So uh, these are these uh, incredibly wealthy, and you talk a handful of these these, these people. And, and it's what is about ten? I think these really powerful oligarchs that control a massive massive proportion of the uh, Russian GDP, and Uzmanov uh, is one of these, and he's very very close to Putin. Um, f- sort of a family closeness as well. His wife trained Putin's alleged mistress who won a... Uh, so uh, Alisha Ruzmanov's wife is the sort of doyenne of rhythmic gymnastics throughout mm. uh, the Soviet era and the post-Soviet era. Um, and she trained uh, Putin's alleged mistress who won a gold at the Athens Olympics in 2004. Um, so they have a close sort of friendship and ties. Um, not just uh, sort of business ties, whatever they they might be, but but Bismarck's fortune comes primarily from um, uh, from Metalloinvest, which is a massive um, mining conglomerate, primarily focused in the iron ore sector in um, in Russia. So, although he's from Uzbekistan, his his main business interests are, are still in the Russian mining sector. But what we also need to understand is that. Usmanov is Uzbek, right? So he is apparently, allegedly, from what I've managed to, to to confirm from reading around press reports, he's obviously been hit with EU sanctions, although nothing is in his name. This is why USM uh, Holdings is one step sort of removed. Um, he he apparently owns 49% of the holding shares there, but I would expect that's been in some sort of trust in, in Cayman Islands or or a number of different what you call secrecy jurisdictions. So Nothing's in his name. He's very careful about this, and, uh, as are all oligarchs. Um, so the sanctions are pretty ineffective, and he's now uh, apparently holed up back in Uzbekistan, where he enjoys a huge amount of protection from the uh, rather authoritarian government uh, uh, there. Um, but if you look at if you look at if you look at Barrick Gold the largest gold reserves of any particular company, the the second largest gold mine in the world in terms of uh, confirmed reserves is where? Is in Uzbekistan. And in 2021, uh, Metallo Invest, and it's difficult to overstate how big this company is uh, in terms of its, its, uh, its presence and dominance within the mining sector. It's bigger than BHP Billiton, it's bigger than Rio Tinto, these huge mining conglomerates. We might be more familiar with um in terms of value capitalization it's it's a massive massive company metallo invest and it's part of usm holdings uh, metallo invest is owned entirely by usm holdings which is in itself 49 percent owned by usman Oven. i think you, you'd said maybe reduced now from Mashiri, about four percent owned by uh Mishiri. so um but if you go back to 2021 so while Putin was amassing, beginning to amass troops on the Ukrainian border, um, Metallo Invest was putting in place um, steps to create a new company, which is called USM Gold. So, USM Holdings itself has set up a, a, a company within USM Holdings that is looking at gold exploration and has has secured the gold exploration rights in a republic within the Russian Federation. Um, so, you know, and this is quite big news in the mining sector when it was announced. Uh, and I think this was confirmed at the end of January this year that that company had been set up, um, literally a month before the Ukrainian invasion. So, you know, this does raise questions. Um, if you're looking, if you're looking at the entire if you're looking at what's happening in the world today, the world that we live in, if you're looking to get out of, get your money out of these Western uh, developed countries, um, and back into uh, Russia, where's the safe haven you're going to put it? It's likely in mining, slightly commodities, but also gold. So th- there just seems to me too many coincidences here for this to be some kind of accident, basically. Um, everything seems to be coming together on this in the last sort of twelve months.
1: It, I, I find I find it really interesting because, uh, you know, people often talk about the amount of money that you know, and I talk about the amount of money that the put into Everton Football Club. People talk about the amount of money that USM have put into Everton Football Club, but in terms of actually what they own and the assets that they own. And the amount of cash that those assets generate, um, the amount that's actually being put into the club is actually relatively small. I mean, Metalla Invest paid a dividend to USM at at the beginning of this year, uh, end of last year, beginning of this year, of $3.2 billion dollars.
0: Absolutely. I mean, this is the thing that I—I I mean, I struggle with this. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the other thing I should say is, I mean, my explorations here—you I, 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 know—I'm hunting around for stuff. And I maybe I think somebody posted on Twitter. I'm putting two plus two together and getting four and a half. So that's sort of quite an interesting <laughs> way of sort of framing it. But 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 you're absolutely right. It's difficult for us to get our heads around the sort of levels of figures. But also, it's difficult for us to understand that these are sort of minuscule amounts in the grand scheme of things for for people like Alisha Rizmanov and to a certain extent, Favre as well. Um, I mean, they, they don't want to, these guys don't like losing money. Of course they don't. But I, I think if you look at what's gone on at Everton in the last 12 months, that kind of tells a story as well, is that these are playthings to, to these guys. These are not serious businesses. These are, these are, they, you know, they were invested in Arsenal until they pulled out in 2007. They took out about 700 million US dollars when they sold up, and then they piled that money into in, into Everton, and plus more. Um, you know, and they're now in they're now in up to 800 million pounds, uh, according to some some estimates. I think it's that the figure roughly that you've you've come to is about 800. That's the, that's the figure that, that like I've put out there.
1: It's, it's yeah around, around about 800 million pound, which you yeah. know is extraordinary in football, in, in the football context. It puts him as you know the third largest benefactor in, yeah. in English football.
0: But, but but then you look at, I mean, it, when I look at, the, you, if you look at the way that this has been managed over the last five years, since 2016, I mean, that first transfer window when they brought in Rooney and Klassen and, and Sigurdsson, uh, 3 number texts, and it's just like splashing the cash all over the place. Um very profligate, um, no clear strategy. I mean, it looked, you know, we're all sort of sitting there as Everton fans, hoping that there's some kind of like grand plan behind this. But actually what it does look like in retrospect is that its if you just grab some bloke off the street, giving him 500 million and say, go and play FPL, but it's for real. I mean, that's kind of what we've got here. And it, 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 that's what it feels like to me is, is that this isn't their core business. This is not their core interests. This is, this is, as, let me go back to the, the, the podcast you did last night with Richard Watts and with, with Matt Slater. They made this absolutely perfect point and probably over the last 20 years, if you look at the Americans coming over, they see sports institutions in the elite leagues as an asset class and those that, you know, they, they are likely to retain value and I don't think I think Everton, if the stadium's delivered, I mean, the future's bright, but it's a five to 10 year project, right? Um, for Everton to really, uh, as a club, to see that that, that sort of value realized and, and put up on a balance sheet and what have you. And it requires a lot more investment. It just makes no sense to me at the moment why Mushiri would want to leave. The, the, the real reason is obviously um, with regards to the, the sort of geopolitical things that are happening in the world with regards to Ukraine. Um, they may just want it to be, get out and get the money, uh, get these resources out of um, places where they might be hit with sanctions, this type of thing. I don't know. But it just doesn't make any sense. You pile in 800 million, you do half the job, you get a fantastic stadium project. And I think it was Richard that said this on yesterday's podcast. You know, I mean, we've been around so long enough to to see so many different stadium proposals put forward by Everton at various uh, points in time. But this one, and I pass it every day on the train out to Ormskirk. I mean, the location where it is, um, is absolutely superb. It's going to be in the city, not too far from where Everton has always been based in L4. So, you know, it just doesn't make any sense to me why they they would want to get rid of now. But I think, it's, 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 it's almost a point for them. It's not really a, a core business that they're running as their core business.
1: And, and I, and I anyway. think, to be honest, I think that point sort of answers your own question uh, from my perspective. I think when he came in, he probably felt that the management team that existed at Everton, you know, from what he'd been told, from what the reputation that the club had at the time as being a well-run club, that it could quite possibly run itself, albeit he would like to be involved in the bits that really interest him, which is talking to agents, negotiating with players, etc., and being involved in, in in the transfer activities, which you know has turned out to be a disastrous uh, yes, set of circumstances. Absolutely. But they're the bits that he enjoys—the managing of a football club. I, I one would imagine, given the scale of operations that he manages elsewhere. Uh, would probably bore him to death, and and
0: yeah.
1: I suspect exactly. <laughs> I suspect where we where we've got to is he feels that he can't devote the time that is necessary, uh, and has no desire to run a football club anyway. Um, mm. But he doesn't seem to want to make that make the time or make the investment in putting people into the club who actually would make something of it given the amount of resource that he's put in and given, as you say, the potential of the stadium coming up in two years' time. So what what choices is he left with? Does he continue to throw good money after bad, Um, at least in terms of football operations, not so much in terms of the stadium, (coughs) and hope that things get better by themselves? Um, That doesn't seem like to me to be a very wise strategy. Um, If he does stay the losses are going to continue for some time, you know, at least another couple, couple of years. And he's still got to find 350 million, say of the 500 million that the stadium's costing. So there's still a reasonably significant um, commitment from him. If he stays to have to put money in. So he's going to end up being, you know, somewhere around about 1.2, 1.2 billion pound uh, by the time the stadium opens if he funds it all himself. Mm. Will Everton Football Club be worth £1.2 billion when Bramley Moore opens? Not a chance in, in, from, from my perspective. Not unless something significant happened on the pitch where we, you know, obviously next year we won't qualify, but if we qualified the year before we move as a Champions League club, then possibly that pushes the valuation up, but nowhere near from, my, mm. you know, from what I think £1.2 billion. So, you know, with all, as you say, with all that's going on in the world and with um, no doubt, even though he's given up the chairmanship of USM, uh, the sort of commitments to his time that he has elsewhere, if there's a buyer, a potential buyer, then it's actually not a bad time for him to sell. I actually think that he is prepared to sell before uh, the stadium is completed. And the reason why I say that is that the fact that it's now in the public domain, and it was put in the public domain, I believe, by the chairman. There's been no denials from Mascheri's people, and they're normally mm. very, very quick to issue denials yeah. about anything that either doesn't suit their cause or isn't true. Um, and there's obviously been no denials from from the club. And I and I always think that if you're if you're getting out of something. And you make it known that you're getting out of something, then that that's a real key indicator of your desire to get out.
0: Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I you know, it, it makes sense to me purely because of, um, like I said, these these sort of Ukraine uh, issues and uh, geopolitical issues that are causing problems for. Somebody like Mashiri, whose who's wealth is effectively connected to someone like Usmanov, right? I mean, uh, th- th- their, their, their past and their futures are uh, intricately intertwined together. I don't think that's ever going to change, right? I mean, uh, he was at Deloitte previously, was he Mashiri? And this is where he's sort of built up his own personal fortune and reputation in, in, uh, in financing and, and, and accounting. But he's worked very closely with. With Ismanov. there's no, there's no question that these guys are, are sort of uh, bound together in some sort of way. So, and and Ismanov cannot clearly remain. And this is this is the sort of big geopolitical change we're talking about. Is over the last, let's say, from the sort of 1990s, uh, late 90s, through to to 2020, um, um, the, 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 the sort of game that these oligarchs have been playing is getting the money out of Russia and amassing wealth in sort of places around the world and assets around the world. Now with the Ukraine problem, the issue that they've got is they've got to get it out, back out of those countries and back to safe havens within, in places where they're not going to be held accountable to funding the, the, the or being connected to Putin, right? So they've got a real problem. They've got to get out quick. Um, and like you say, you know, deliver and to, to, to realize the sort of value of the investments that he's on the hook for at Everton, he's going to have to stay very long-term. So it's probably a good time to get out, but but he's going to have to take a hit if he wants out. There's no way I can see that anybody's going to come in and pay 500 million. I think that they, a figure that I'd seen floating around is that they value the club at 550 million Um but he's down 800 to 850 million. Is is Mishiri going to take a a 300 million hit? So this is why I've been sort of trying to string together. So let me bounce back a couple of suggestions to you, because I'd like to know what you think on this. So let's say my sort of uh, John Thornton gold market conspiracy theory is all a load of nonsense. Um, There's still interest being expressed by Thornton, uh, Kaminsky, and been in, in this consortium that's been headed up by Peter Kenyon. So there's a, two other scenarios I can sort of think out here. One is that there's genuine interest. Why would that be? Well, Thornton's a financier. He's very well connected to money markets. If, if we look at it from this point of view, just purely from, does this make sense for Everton Football Club? This is kind of a dream team, right? I mean, I think we have to get that on record as well. You've got one of the most influential people in Wall Street finance the last sort of 50 years in John Thornton. Certainly no problem raising money on, uh, uh, on, on the markets to fund anything that he would like to do. I mean, that's the status that he operates at. You've got Kaminsky, who's a billion-plus value um, uh, real estate mogul, and he brings a huge amount of reassurance on delivering something like Bramley Moor Dock Stadium. And is probably looking around the Docklands areas in Liverpool, now that they don't have UNESCO World Heritage status, thinking, Christ, there's maybe a bit of money to be made here, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the other sort of, sort of uh, angle I think w- might be worth uh, looking at. What, what's Kaminsky done in terms of uh, real estate development and regeneration of areas? I mean, that could be a major boost for not just Everton, but the city itself. And then you've got Peter Kenyon, who I would say, you know, is he? It's, I mean, he was CEO, not chief of the board, uh, chairman of the board. He was CEO at Man United and then Chelsea, right? So is he? I mean, if you said to me, we're going to get Kaminsky as chairman of the board, um, and we, uh, with, with uh, Thornton involved there somehow, maybe just a shareholder, or maybe the other way, I, I don't know, but with uh, Peter Kenyon as CEO. I mean, this ticks all the boxes to me. It ticks the boxes in terms of expertise in delivering real estate um, projects. It ticks the box in terms of financing. We know we're not going to get ripped off and charged massive levels of interest. Um, We're going to get some sort of good deal on long-term financing for the stadium um, and that capital that's required to deliver that project. And then we've got probably one of the most respected, well-connected and experienced Premier League CEOs in Peter Kenyon. I mean, that ticks every box for me. The question I can't get my head around is why are they even interested? Why is someone like Thornton interested? Um, I think that... But, but we'll put that to one side for a moment. The other side is, is maybe they would be happy to come in, but they don't want to pay over the odds, right? Um, and the figure that I've seen floating around is that Mashiri wants 550 million for the club. That's what he values it at. But this um, kaminsky Thornton. Kenyan consortium, maybe 400 million. Um, well, maybe that's just shaking, that's, that's, you know, chucking a stone into the pond and seeing what waves come up and seeing if anybody else sticks their head out from behind a rock and decides that they may maybe interested in putting a bid. You know, so it, it could be stirring markets, but I don't think that this interest is just totally out of the blue. I think there's definitely been some background conversations going on about this for some considerable time. And I just think the coincidence between, you know, and Thornton, who's never had any interest in getting involved in the sports business before, um, it just makes a lot of sense to me. Especially if you're looking at the next sort of, what, two, three, five years, where um high net worth people are going to be taking the money out of stocks and piling them into things like gold and and iron commodity markets and this type of thing i mean they could afford to take a 300 million here if they get a decent tie up or say jv with uh with uh, in uzbekistan on gold mining because that money the money that they make from that's just going to wipe out anything so i don't know i mean i'll be the first to admit this was a very late night Google rabbit hole that I sort of disappeared down, but I thought it would be interesting to at least put it out there and see what other people thought of it because I think everybody is asking the same question. Like, why are these, why is this happening now? And as Evertonians, we sort of check that and say, machinery's just been such a complete disaster in terms of on the pitch performance um, and in terms of transfer profligacy, shall we say. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think. If, if Bramley moore Doc ever does get delivered, then we will look back and think Mushiri, we will be thanking him in the long term. Because, I mean, this is what happened with Celtic. And Celtic's the other team that I follow. I grew up in Scotland and family from Liverpool. So hence the Celtic and Everton uh, sort of uh, fandom. But, um, you know, we were eight minutes, in when I was in, I grew up in we were eight minutes away from liquidation until Fergus McCann came in. And Fergus McCann never put any money into players. And, and, you know, we, we saw Rangers win nine in a row. But now, if you say a bad word against Fergus McCann anywhere around Parkhead, he's the guy that delivered us that 60,000 seater world class stadium and completely turned around the fortunes of Celtic Football Club because it then had the commercial base to generate the revenues, get the, you know, uh, supporters in and, and, and deliver things like European football under the Martin O'Neill era. So, um, so I, I can, you know, I, I don't think. Machiri's been a complete and utter disaster. But as an Everton fan, I do want rid of him. And if we could get some sort of dream team coming in like this, fantastic. The question I can't get away from is why. Why why do they want to sell now when it's going to involve taking such a big hit? Um, And why do these people specifically want to come in and take over Everton? I just can't get my head around it. So that's, that's the motivation for sort of disappearing down this conspiracy sort of theory rabbit hole that I did last night. But it was, it was kind of fun. I thought it was worth putting out there.
1: No, definitely. And it, it's certainly got lots of people um, thinking and, and talking. So I appreciate you spending the time to, um, to go through the logic or, or at least your logic in terms of you know, why it might be a, might be a possibility. So um, as a theory, it definitely has credibility, whether it is the case or not. I guess only time time will tell, Mike. I, I'm conscious of time, and I know that you wanted just to discuss in the last sort of ten minutes of the podcast something which is quite dear to you uh, in terms of your, uh, your 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 professional responsibilities. So, um, by all means, uh, the floor is yours.
0: Right. Okay. So, obviously, uh, I think everybody who's listening to this podcast is. Has a, a keen interest in, in Everton, but not only that is is probably somebody that that listens to quite a lot of of fan generated Everton content, whether it's the other podcast that you do with Andy and George, or whether it's uh, you know View from the Bullens End or Blue Room, um, um, uh, or, 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 or any sort of fan created content that, that we see on Everton. And and you know over the last twelve months, um, I think one thing that's striking a lot of Everton fans is the the amount of the amount of sort of input and the amount of i wouldn't say power but influence that can be sort of exerted through social media through different platforms whether it's youtube whether it's ACast podcasts whether it's uh blogs like the the s blog that you do on the finances whether it's um whether it's twitter accounts um, just uh, of, of of independent fans who are maybe on ESSG or FC Forum or the Twenty Seven Years campaign, or fans that are opposed to that. What what I've seen, sort of standing back from this, um, is that you know th- there's a huge amount of empowerment of of the fans, and this is something that is it's completely transformed fandom of football clubs, not just Everton, over the last sort of ten years, particularly as. Fans become more sort of digitally literate and they're operating on different platforms and this type of thing. But the other thing that I've seen uh, or, or be listening to, um, particularly in, in Twitter spaces, um, is that there's this kind of this kind of uh, sort of understanding that or this kind of dispute that's going on. There was a Twitter space on the other night, and there was a lot of arguments and there was a lot of sort of outrage about it about how the fans are not united as one sort of fan base. And there was a lot of criticism of, I don't know, I couldn't quite understand what the hell was going on, but apparently there was a meeting at a hot walk uh, down by the stadium and some people weren't invited or something like that. But there, was, there seems a lot of angst and resentment. And one thing that, that I've been sort of conscious of is that the, the fandom itself is changing. It used to be the case is we were just spectators, I mean, maybe went to match games or we watched match of the day and we maybe bought a replica shirt. Um, but we were very passive. Now that has completely changed. And the, any clubs that, or fan bases that can figure out a way to sort of bring people together and, and hold the board to account, this type of thing, they, they, you know, there's, there's a huge sort of area to go that. And as it happens, while I'm sort of, you know, scrolling on Twitter, looking at all of this type of stuff. I receive uh, a, a sort of pad of applications for our masters. Uh, he wants to conduct a, a 12-month research project looking at the performance of Everton and the sort of various issues that are affecting Everton Football Club um, during the Mascheri era. And so, Adam is, is looking. He's registered now. He's on the MRes, and we're putting together a. A project, and what he's going to be doing is not not sort of new content creation, but a project that he's going to be launching, um, and I'm going to be quite involved with it as well. I think at least in the early stages, but it's, this is going to be Adam's project about bringing together these dis- different disparate groups of fans, and I think behind it is the recognition that we we are all Everton fans; we're all unified by a single desire to see our club perform where we rightfully see its place in the, in the English football league, which is, you know, competing up the top, competing right, not just top 10, but ultimately qualifying for Europe and competing in Europe. That's what every Evertonian wants to see, whether you're, whether you're for Machiri, against Machiri, whether you, whether you think Bill Kenwright's given us some good times or whether you think he needs uh, carting off immediately. We all want to see that. That's what unites us as a fan base. However, we also need to recognise and we need to respect as a fan base that we all support our club in different ways. You're based in the States. I was based in China for 15 years, so I haven't been to a game since 2004. Um, the last game I went to, incidentally, I met my wife for the first time at Goodison Park. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, we all feel a very strong connection to the place. Um, and to the club itself but we all support in different ways not all of us live in l4 not all of us live within the city region but we buy merchandise we watch we watch games We, we you know we pay membership fees we we buy the shirts we buy maybe one or two replica shirts for our kids when they come out every year um we we engage on twitter but that's that shouldn't be a problem and if we really want to become this sort of a break into that sort of top six elite club I think we need, we need to understand a couple of things. First, we need a stadium um, that's going to allow uh, the club's commercial side to build those uh, revenues, because you can't survive or you can't compete with just the TV money, um, which is effectively what Everton have been trying to do. Um, but we also need a global fan base. This is what separates the A-League clubs from that sort of trailing pack, is the fact that they've got fans around the world. And I think once Everton starts seeing some uh, some success, and I think this was a point, it might have been Matt Slater that made it last night, it might be been Richard, I can't quite remember. But once Everton starts, maybe maybe wins a trophy, once it's competing regularly in European football, you will start to see that global fan base come back because there's some legacy fans out there that followed the club through the 80s, uh, this type of thing. And, and we've seen that. We've seen that resurgence with even with Man City. Man City, 10 years ago, nobody uh, supported Man City outside of Moss Side, right? It was pretty much a local sort of uh, concern. But we've got to realise that as Evan fans. We need to, I think we need to to not only respect, but make that visible. So this project that Adam's going to be doing is looking at maybe collating and organising all the different content and trying to understand all these different the way we've sort of discussed it, me and Adam, is that we're not one big fan base. We're, we're, we're a sort of collection of different tribes of Everton fans contributing and supporting the club in different ways. So there's something that's going to be launched, I, I would say, before, hopefully before the beginning of the season. And we're going to be reaching out to people like yourself, uh, people like Benjamin Stanley and the uh, View from the Bullens End, other influential people in the community uh, like the ESSG, the FC Fans Forum, trying to trying to sort of map out. So you get a one-stop kind of shop for where where anybody interested in Everton can, can, can see all this sort of fan-generated, influential content all sort of in one place. So just to keep everybody's uh, ears to the ground for that, um, within the next sort of, I would say, six to eight weeks, we'll be looking to to get that up and running. That,
1: that's, that's, that sounds really interesting. I mean... I've been around Everton social media for more, more than a decade and I, I still find it difficult to keep up with uh, all I, of the content I, I, that's produced by so many different people with so many but, different but this
0: But this is exactly the thing. I mean uh, w- the first conversation I had with Adam was like he was telling me about accounts that I hadn't really even heard of mm-hmm. um, and but then you know I would be saying did you see this post by so and so and it was like, no, I missed that one, and that—that that to me seems a problem, right? Uh, it's not about, it's not, it's not. The, we've got all of this incredibly insightful stuff that's going on, um, and we've got all of these different perspectives, uh, and we should be kind of trying to make that more visible and create this kind of walled garden for Everton fans to go and explore different perspectives on how we support our club and what the different issues are affecting it. So, so I think this has got honestly. The potential to be one of the best uh, and most fun masters projects I've ever been involved in. Um, i my my real problem is I'm like I need to sort of hold back and let Adam get on with it. So um, rather <laughs> it's than do it myself, your... well, it's 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 his project, but also I just don't have the time. I've got too many other things. I'd love to do something like this, but I think um, you know he's he's going. We're going to be over the next, like, say, six to eight weeks discussing this. <laughs> And I will absolutely fully support him to do that, but uh, he's going to be the one driving it. Um, so we'll be in touch with you at some point, and any any of these other any other people uh, online, keep an eye keep an eye out for this. We'll be putting an announcement, and we'll try to get people like yourself Paul, to uh, to spread the word about it.
1: Yeah, perfect. I,
0: I would be delighted
1: to do that. So, um, thank you, Mike. That's been a really interesting chat. Thank, thanks for going through. First of all. Uh, your connection with Everson, your connection with with China, going through your um, the reasoning behind your theory in terms of the connections between Usmanov and and um, Thornton and why perhaps uh, this is why you might be involved in, in, in the future. And of course, just the final bit in terms of you know, the research project, which sounds great. Um, really appreciate your time, appreciate your input. And uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks very much. I'm sure a lot of people will enjoy listening to this. And um, definitely think more about your theory.
0: Yeah, <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll, we'll see what happens and transpires. And, and I think, uh, you know, I'm not speaking out of turn here. I think everybody uh, in the uh, Everton social media community definitely, uh, you're the go to guy for looking at these uh, financial data, myself included. I mean, if I need to know anything, it's I'm straight onto your blog and having a look. So uh so yeah, sincere appreciation for what you do and um yeah, that light never seems to go off on the Esk website looking at these finances. But that I'm pretty sure <laughs> is gonna keep is gonna keep a few people at Everton awake each night. Well, um, I, think, I think
1: the fact that we've got so many issues makes it almost <laughs> impossible uh, never yeah. to finish doing the work on it. If we were a well-run club, wouldn't have half the things to say that I have to say, so...
0: <laughs> yeah, and, you know, we like we do like to have them all, don't we? So. <laughs> we I, like, think,
1: <laughs> I, think, I think, I mean, every fan base thinks they're unique, but um, I think Everton must be one of the most researched clubs mm. by its own fan base that's out there.
0: But this is this is a massive strength. Uh, I mean, there's not many there's, there's not many fair weather fans. That 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 old sort of uh, that old phrase, you know, born not manufactured. I mean, the the, the passion and uh, uh, intensity of that sort of feeling about Everton. I, I don't think you get it at too many other clubs, and you certainly don't get such a, a vast proportion of the fans that demonstrate that. On a, on a regular basis. And yeah, it, it, it feels, it feels, it's it, it, certainly this last, latter stage of the last season. I mean, that was on display for every single person in the, in the world to see in terms of these sort of coach meetups and the sort of mobilisation of the fans to support the team. And yeah, I, I think as, as, as so many people have said, it, it was, as, it was the fans that really pulled the team through that, just dragged them kicking and screaming. That old, Howard Kendall phrase that, you know, you get a ball in the, 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 uh, the street or suck the ball into the net. I mean, that is effectively what happened in that Palace match, was it not? It was absolutely fantastic. So
1: yeah, I've, got, um, I've got no doubt at all, and I'm sure that the people within the club have no doubt at all, that they, the single... Yeah.
0: Um, the single factor that kept us up.
1: Yeah, the, the single differentiator between... Being relegated, not being relegated, was the way that the fans pulled together and um, told the team, taught yeah. the team, taught the club how much the club means to the fans. And let's hope that the club and the players and the managers and the and the future owner, whoever the future owner is, um, never forgets that lesson. Because yeah,
0: but, but similarly, Paul, I think you know to sort of wrap up on that that note. I think that. That We shouldn't forget that either. Whether whether we have disagreements amongst ourselves as a fan base on what the best way forward is or what the actual issues are, every yeah. single Evertonian can say, we did that together.
1: Yep. Yeah. And equally, every single opinion is equally valid.
0: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Totally agree.
1: Yeah. Good. What a, what a good point to finish on. Mike, thanks so much. Uh, this podcast will be out very shortly. Um, appreciate your time. And uh, no doubt we'll speak again soon hopefully. We will do. Cheers, mate. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Thank you.